Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode number 924 with author Stephen Kotler about his new book entitled The Devil's Dictionary. This podcast number 924 is brought to you by Kevin Cahoe, author of a new book entitled One Hit Wonder, The Real Life Adventures of an Average Guy and the Lessons He Learned Along the Way. If you want to learn more about Kevin Cahoe, his programs and events in his new book, please visit his website at www.onehitwonder.site. That's www.onehitwonder.site. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview and returning author guest Stephen Kotler about his new book entitled The Devil's Dictionary. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison. All of you know me, and many of you know the gentleman on the other side of the screen, Stephen Kotler, because he's been a regular guest on Inside Personal Growth. And I just want to acknowledge him for the good work that he continues to do. And today we're going to be speaking about his newest book, which releases on April 19th, which is Earth Day, uh, The Devil's Dictionary. Uh, and I think most of you are going to be intrigued by what he has to say around environmentalism, uh, empathy, how that's going to play a role. And I think when you read this book, you can take away, let me just put it this way, a new perspective about us and our relationship with Mother Earth and how we're treating her. And I I applaud you for that because Man, things are, have gone sideways uh, in this world, right, Stephen? Sideways is a, yeah, sideways is a good, polite term, there, Greg. Let's, let's stick with sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, like that. It is sideways. Well, for my listeners who don't know much about Stephen, it's really pretty simple. All you got to do is type in his name in Google. You're going to come up with all kinds of things. But I'm going to tell you. Maybe a small bit amount because I couldn't give you everything in the accolades that he's got. He is New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Again, if you want to learn more, type Flow Research Collective in. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He's the author of nine bestsellers. The Art of Impossible was the last one he did on our show. The future is faster than you think. Stealing fire, the rise of Superman, bold and abundance. Uh, and he's been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes. And last time I was on, he said, you know, I've been nominated, but I've never gotten them. Uh, have you gotten one yet? No, I still haven't won. But it's close. It's coming. It's coming. I can tell you that. A lifelong environmentalist and animal rights advocate. He's co-founder of Planet Home. Uh, a conference concert innovation accelerator focused on solving critical environmental challenges and the co-founder of the Forest Plus Fire Collective, a network of individuals and organizations dedicated to ending catastrophic wildfires and restoring forest health in the American West. You living where you live, me living where I live, us both living in California. Well, you might be on the Nevada border there. But the reality is the wildfires have been, to say the least, a big challenge for all of us. Thank you for the work you're doing. Hopefully we can make an impact. Um, we've certainly had prior administrations, which were completely ignorant 
to the challenges associated with what we have to deal with here in California and across the world. Wildfires here. I mean, look at the Amazon. Um, he's also the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio. We'll put a link to that in the blog. It's a top 10s iTunes science podcast uh, frequently on television and radio. He also, you also can check him out on Google, The Science of Maximizing Human Potential. We'll put a link to that at the TEDx Albuquerque, um, which is where he used to live. He doesn't live there anymore. Um, whenever possible, you can find him uh, hurling himself down mountains at high speeds. Um, I don't know how much of that is still going on, but are, are you still doing that, Stephen? Yeah, I have no use of my left arm today from yesterday's outing. Okay, so you were out snowboarding, huh? Skiing. Skiing. Skiing, Skiing. yeah. Like, yeah like, uh, I, de- I definitely managed to hit the ground hard a couple of times. I was, I was learning, but I was crashing. Well, we've had some, uh, again, unusual weather patterns here in California and not as much precipitation as expected, and the snowpack has been less than normal, uh, both in Mammoth Lakes, Lake Tahoe area where Stephen lives. And so um, a challenge for us, but that's where we're going to weave this interview into. (laughs) Um, You know, The Devil's Dictionary is a sci-fi thriller, and it's the sequel kind of to The Last Tango in Cyberspace. And many of my listeners have no clue about either of these books. So to put a context and wrap a row about it, one, how did the Devil's Dictionary come about? And can you set the story kind of in the briefest way possible going from The Last Tango in Cyberspace to The Devil's Dictionary, which is rich with characters, rich with, you just said, uh, gangster minute ago, Jewish gangster. Uh, But I'd love to kind of put that together for the listening audience. It's interesting because the core, I, the devil's dictionary itself, and and I won't be giving away too much here is an artificial intelligence that can create life from scratch. So the reason it's called the devil's dictionary is one of the fastest ways to drive species extinction is the introduction of new exotic species into ecosystems uh, tends to drive extinction. So an AI that can create life from scratch um, poses a a, a giant threat to the stability of our ecosystems. I actually had the idea, not an AI in the beginning, like 30 years ago, I had the idea for a dictionary, like a, like a magical dictionary that anything that was written in the dictionary got uh appeared in reality and that i played with this idea in a in a tiny little short story i wrote maybe right when i was just out of grad school i don't think i ever published it and sort of parked it and went that's a cool idea i don't know how to deal with that and let it alone for 20 or 30 years and when uh ai started showing up and and my my uh, dear friend Andrew Hessel is in charge of the Human Genome Right Project. So you, everybody is familiar with the uh, first Human Genome Project where they read DNA. The right, pro- the, they read a human genome. The right version is an attempt to write a human genome from scratch to literally boot up human life from scratch. And Andrew's a, a dear friend. I've known him for a very long time. Conjunction with Singular University and things like that. 
And we started talking about sort of what CRISPR and AI and gene sequencing, those technologies will make possible really within like a 10 to 15 year timeframe, which is where the book is set, right? About 15 years into the future. And suddenly I realized, oh, wait, I don't have to write this magical realism book about a dictionary. I can use actually real technology that'll be here in 10 to 15 years to tell the same story. And so that was sort of where the the original core idea that's the center of it um, came from. And as you pointed out, almost everything else uh, is the continuation of a world I created in Last Hang on Cyberspace. And this is, is essentially that same story picked up you know, further on. And I would say, I, I think the books function independently, very independently, especially Devil's Dictionary. I wrote it specifically so you didn't have to read the first one. Um, I think Devil's Dictionary is better than Last Tango. I think Last Tango, I was still trying to figure out how to write the world and 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 and, and really put the characters together. And I think Devil's Dictionary, it really sort of snaps together. Um, we were, uh, what my, we meaning myself and my, my publisher, my, uh, St. Martin's, always sort of thought about this a little bit in the back of our minds as is lion zorn like a new sort of detective kind of detective hero for the future for that kind of story do i want to do a trilogy do i want to keep doing this as a series only because um those are writing challenges i've never tried to undertake before so they're from a writer's perspective they were new challenges but the world the lead character is a man named lion zorn he is a genetic mutant first of his kind born in the 21st century so this century um, and what is different from him is, and this is probably actually something that's already in our species. I've just taken it farther is he's what they call, he's an empathy tracker. So he has a wildly expanded sense of empathy. He doesn't just feel for all human beings, which he does, of course, but it extends beyond the line of species. So he feels for plants, for animals, for ecosystems. And he's not the only M tracker. There's others who have started showing up in the world and, you know, they end up, while the transformation itself is, you know, when these new talents show up, um, difficult, right? Suddenly you're feeling empathy for things you've never felt empathy before and can be overwhelming. But once that transfer, turns out it was a, it's a, in the future that I created, it's a useful skill. It's like the cool hunting of tomorrow, right? Like, because they can track cultural trends using empathy and emotion long before they arrive. They can see them start to emerge and help organizations, companies whatsoever get out ahead of them. And in um, Last Tango, Lion is brought in uh, by a, an eccentric billionaire to help uh, solve an environmental uh, problem. And this, this book, it's, this, it's sort of the same setup. It's the environmental uh, issue set up in Last Tango was the development of a psychedelic, a new psychedelic that actually creates the same cross-species empathy that M-trackers normally feel in average people. Mm -hmm. So the tension in the first book is around that particular uh, psychedelic. In Devil's Dictionary, that psychedelic has already been released ride, and it's produced what I term the splinter, which is there are people who literally now feel empathy for all animals. They're huge animal rights advocates and a huge portion of the globe has gone in this direction. And we'll talk about why I thought that was important in half a second. I'll come back to it. And then there's a opposition movement, right? Who, who doesn't, don't believe empathy for animals. It's a human's first, you know, two legs, not for counter movement. And this is the world of the devil's dictionary. And interestingly, I always say that this book is like two parts cyberpunk and one part 
climate fiction with a twist. And the twist is that both cyberpunk and climate fiction as a general rule are set in dystopian universes. And while the universe in, in both Last Tango and Devil's Dictionary is darker for sure, it's um, most of the may climate change, climate change related disaster has been averted. Um, species die off disasters have been averted. I don't make a big deal out of it in the book, but my interest was if you're creating a world where these, these huge catastrophes that are, you know, as you brought up the world is going sideways, that's part of the sideways um, have been averted. I wanted to know how it would happen. And I, and I came to the conclusion that you would need a giant shift in consciousness and empathy. We would have to expand what psychologists call our sphere of caring and in, in, to include plants and animals and ecosystems so we could start to see the earth as an extension of ourselves kind of thing. So that's well, the world. Species extinction is an issue. And, you know, you were influenced by uh, an evolutionary biologist at Santa Cruz who recently passed away. I actually was listening to one of his videos and the accolades people made. You know, what, what caught me about what I listened to he talked about it, he lived in San Diego and he used to get abalone, you know, and he would dig for abalone with, a, you know, with, with whatever he had. And he's, back then, abalone were this big, he said. Now, he said, they're these teeny little things that you can barely even get. So talk about something that we all in my lifetime were used to being able to get to eat. And now we're looking at extinction if it's not already pretty close believe it or not, to tide pools and things where you can't get these things. And you, and you know this. Um, so if you would, you know, um, I apologize for not remembering his name. Right Michael Soule. Michael Soule. So Michael Soule had a huge influence on you. And what a wonderful man died at 84 just recently, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I listened to that, I thought about the book. You know, I was like, okay, here's a guy that's talking about just an extinction of one species. I think right now we have about 3,000 species that are close to extinction. I don't know what the number is. The but number it's- was so the extinction rates are a thousand times greater than normal. We're losing some, depends on whose numbers you want to go by, 50 to 300 species a day are yeah. what we're losing. It's the numbers are catastrophic. And, yeah. um, so anyway, Sule, big hero, amazing. He's the godfather of conservation biology. He's your guy, you know. <laughs> one of he's one of them. Um, yeah. But I like so, and I was introduced to him. You know, if people always ask, "What are your favorite books?" Recommend, and one of the books I always recommend is a book by a, a science writer named David Quammen, "The Song of the Dodo." And it was actually David Quammen who introduced me to Michael Sule back in I want to say the '90s when he published that book, maybe the early thousands. No, I think it was the '90s, but. Soule was this conservation biologist. Well, they weren't conservation biologists at that point. He was a biologist. And he got really interested, among other things, in the fragility of island populations. So one of the things that's really well known in in sort of field biology is that weird things happen on islands. And species tend to push into all available possible niches. So you get gigantism and you get dwarfism. Right. It's why there's a dwarf rhinoceros running around Sumatra that's the size of a small dog. Right. Those kinds of things happen on an island. The other thing he started to figure out is that species who live on islands are extremely vulnerable to extinction. And it's the reason is 
you can't if a if a so-called extinction event, a volcano eruption, a tidal wave, a typhoon, any of those things strikes an island, there's not a lot of genetic diversity on the island. So if you wipe out big chunk of the seventy percent of the population or something like that, like a tidal wave can can do to certain species on islands, inbreeding is the result, and within a couple of generations, the line itself dies out. So this has been well known for a while, fifty years, a hundred years. I, I I don't actually know. What Soule realized in the 60s and 70s was that in the modern world, you don't need an ocean for an island. You can do a two-lane highway. And for certain species of snakes, for example, that are preyed on by birds of prey, they won't cross a highway because they're too, it's too open, too exposed. And they've got, you know, really hardwired evolutionary coding that says, don't do that. And so they're stuck in this little man-made island and what Soleil realized is this is the entire modern world and his response to it that has since you know become foundational ideas in conservation biology is you know a fight against habitat fragmentation we need mega linkages which are basically huge tracts of unbroken wilderness connected by migration corridors, which are skinnier corridors so animals can have room to roam and that they don't get trapped on these islands in case something goes wrong. And this is now the most well-established sort of way to protect species against climate change. E.O. Wilson famously wrote a book called Half Earth, where he said, if we want to fight off species extinction, we need to conserve 50% of the planet. And, And by the way, this has since become This is now standard environmental thinking. If you look at the United Nations plan dealing with uh, climate change and environmental, it's 30% of the world's oceans and 20% of the world's land mass is what they're trying to protect. It's 50% of the earth. And so this is, this is, and you know, the U S government is involved in this governments all over the world are now involved in this. So Sule um, has his, his his thinking has become hugely influential and here we are in the, you know in the decade of conservation also so even though he he just passed away i think um he would have liked you know the stuff that we're going to see over the coming decade uh, most definitely you know he reminded me you know i i've written in books uh, i've been asked to write chapters in books for uh bucky fuller and I was thinking about Bucky Fuller and Bucky Fuller's predictions and, you know, the same kind of thing as Michael Soule. Now, the story follows an empathy tracker, as you call it, an EM tracker. Um, and I think this whole concept around empathy tracking is important. Uh, it's, a, it's a theme. It's an important theme. Speak to the listeners about empathy tracking and why it's considered a syndrome syndrome well it was considered a syndrome in the way that like you know the way i explained it was when the when the genetic mutation first shows up they call it a syndrome much in the way that they started to talk about shell shock you know as a syndrome before we actually figured out wait a minute this is post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd right it's not uh and i um what was so what was interesting to me about empathy tracking is if you work and you know my wife and i have for years run a, a dog sanctuary and but if you work in the animal rescue world the animal rights world you meet a lot of real empaths and especially people whose sense of empathy stretches across species lines now this is um 
not all that rare in the regular population, you know, of roughly 10% of the population sort of has this kind of cross species empathy built in. There's some, some people think the numbers go all over the place, but so I just said, well, uh, let's take it farther and empathy. If you know how people are feeling and you can sort of feel cultural empathy, you could get the sense of like emerging cultural emotions. You can predict because emotions drive our behavior. So you can predict where that's going. But the reason sort of empathy is such a big deal for me is again, environmental. And you probably know this, but the human brain, uh, and I've I've written about this in most of my books, is is a giant filtering mechanism, right? We take in 11 million bits of information a second. That's what our senses gather. Uh, but consciousness, what we can be aware of is, depending on whose numbers you want to go by, roughly 2,000 outputs. So the vast majority of everything that comes in is invisible to us. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what gets through the filters? What do we, what do we, what are, what's we see in reality? And one of the things that we don't tend to see anymore are plants, animals, and ecosystems. And the reason is quite simply, we live in box world. We live in boxes. We spend our lives staring at boxes. Sometimes we live in boxes, stare at boxes, at other boxes inside the box, inside the box. Like, and so the brain goes, okay, box world is what's really important to you. Let's, we've got to get rid of information. Let's filter out what's extraneous. And what gets removed is plants and animals and ecosystems. So if you talk to psychologists about climate change or, or species die off or any of these great environmental challenges that we now face, why are we, why is this happening? A lot of And we'll say it's because our ability to see and perceive and care about the natural world is gone. Yeah. Thanks to the filtering mess. Right. So how do you get it back? Right. If we're going to save the planet, how do you get it back? And it turns out empathy is the secret weapon. Empathy literally is what expands the brains. I used the term earlier, sphere of caring. How, what you care about, what is it? Most people care about like their tribe, their family, their spouse, their kids, maybe a couple of close friends, you know, maybe their community if they can stretch it out far, but it's a limited scope, but it can be empathy is how we widen it out. And as it widens out, you start, you're basically saying, Hey, I feel for this thing. This is important. Pay attention. So the brain starts letting in plants, animals, and ecosystems. So if we want to reboot ecological perception, empathy is one way to do it. And this is, I'm not just sort of, this is, we know from flow research, we know from research into psychedelics done by Robin Hart, Carrot Harris's lab at Imperial College London. We know from meditative research, one of the things that happens with these altered states of consciousness is you get nature appreciation because it expands your sphere of caring and you end up with nature appreciation and environmental activism on the back end of it. This is sort of really well established. So it's sort of, even though this isn't a human performance book at all, it dovetails in with a lot of the work we do at the Flow Research Collective. And one of the reasons that I you know, thought it was really important to start the collective and, and train people in this stuff is one, I want them to use peak performance to solve environmental challenges, right? I want them to you know, take what I'm teaching them and, and learn how to use Flow to help make the world a better place. But also it's a backdoor into empathy and ecological perception getting people to kind of see and care about the environment. Um, has been well, it's you, as you say, it's, it will solve ecological challenges. Um, and so that brings me to this part about 
the evolution of technology with VR. So now you say we're staring in boxes. Well, yeah, I'm staring in a box right now with you through Zoom to do this call. And unfortunately, I do spend a good percentage of my day, but I do spend a lot of time outdoors hiking and and bike riding and getting in touch with nature because I believe that balances one's world. It has to. Um, But I I do see an imbalance at this point. And I see uh, our world speeding up in the box movement, in the virtual reality movement, into the glasses, into whatever, so that they can stay connected, but not to the true ecology of our world, let's say. Um, and you set the book in the future, but everything from augmented reality to virtual reality to mixed reality to holograms are all there. And they've been woven into the fabric of our lives. Will this, as the question says, all happen fast? We're in 2022. You're saying we could hit it by 2030. Um, 30, well, in that book, 30, I think 2035, I think, in Devils. Last hangover was like 2028. And okay. I think uh, maybe, maybe a little bit right in there. So, But tell us where we're yeah, going yeah, so, and what, what we... Yeah, this as is a species, you know, I I think back. Pardon me, but one of my favorites was Barbara Marks Hubbard. You know, I hadn't really realized that she'd run for vice president, and you know, she'd spent so much time on the ecology and the world and the conscious evolution of our consciousness. Right? Um, speak with us, if you would, about you know. How is my listener sitting here saying, okay, I'll get the devil's dictionary. I'm going to read this great nonfiction book. I'm going to hear about all these characters and what's going on, but I need to take some action to, it starts with me. It starts with me. So what what would you say, you know, is this going to happen? When's it going to happen? How can we make a difference? So those are, Technological questions and make a difference questions. Let me let's start on the tech side. Uh, I believe I could be wrong, Greg, but I think you had me uh, on to talk about the future is faster than you think, which is a book I wrote with Peter Diamandis about technological technological development and convergence over the next ten years. So uh, I don't know if I told you this story when Peter and I were first talking about the future is faster than you think which was about these converging, exponentially accelerating technologies, I couldn't figure out the fuck kind of world they were going to create because everything was happening so quickly that we were looking at in the real world. So I literally created the world in Last Tango. One of the reasons I wrote Last Tango was to take all these technologies that are coming so quickly, put them into a world and roll it into the future just so I could see what was coming so I could then go back and write a nonfiction book about it. the short version of this is, you know, exponential technology is technology that double on a periodic basis, Moore's law, right? Or anything riding on the back of Moore's law. Um, what we're seeing now is converging exponentials. So AI is stacking on top of robotics, is stacking on top of VR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're getting these overwhelming waves that are kind of washing away almost everything in their path. Ray Kurzweil, who, uh, has done sort of the best 
predictive math on, on this question has right. said that over the course of the 21st century, we're going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change. So that's like birth of agricultural to the industrial revolution twice over the next 80 years. It's a hundred years worth of technological change in a decade. So you want to know what's coming. Well, think back to 1919 or 1922 at this point, and then fast forward to 2022, mm-hmm. that much technological change over the next decade. So yes, I think a lot of this stuff is, is happening. Um, and a lot of it is happening, you know, significantly faster and, and it, it, the acceleration of acceleration keeps happening. So it's speeding up more. Um, so that, you know, that is a, that is just the, the fabric of our reality right now. It's, you know, blitzkrieg fast as we know. And, um, that's the first side of it. So I'll stop there and then we can. Well, the second it. side is. If empathy is the solution, compassion, empathy, whatever we want to refer to it as for all our beings on earth, animals, plants, you know, nature, um, how do we, because you just uh, gave the dichotomy between the empathy person and the person who's not the two-legged, you call the two-legged something uh, when okay. we first two legs, not four. Yeah. Humans first movement. Yeah, yeah. So, wh- what is it that you believe, as a writer, researcher, uh, founder of organizations that are attempting, from a philanth- philanthropic standpoint, to mitigate these challenges, needs to happen? Well, it dep- so I I believe you do need a shift in consciousness. You have to, and I, you know, I like to say that empathy sort of starts at home. It starts with how we treat the animals in our lives. How do we treat the plants in our lives? Like, I, you know, whip, for anybody who has pets, is the pet a family member and treated as an equal or is, you know, is the pet treated as something that's submissive? And, um, you know, do you have a pet or do you have a companion animal is, is sort of the question. And, you know, I always say that like, you, that's where that work starts, the work of shifting our consciousness, because you have to start with the stuff that's closest to you because it's the easiest to sort of work with. I, um, you know, the, dis, the technology side of it that I just talked about is what sort of gives me the most hope because <clears throat> we are getting, you know, and, I've, and Peter and I have been writing about this in three books and we're writing a fourth book now that talks about we, we have the technology. We're starting to have the technology to meet these grand environmental challenges. So it is, you know, it's really a question of can we shift our consciousness because the tech is there. It's just about the will to do it. And we're seeing it now <coughs> with <coughs> climate change. And I think this is only the first year, but if you... Look at the amount of entrepreneurship, the amount of funds and really creative, smart funds that have gotten started up around climate change. We're called it, you know, clean tech 2.0. Um, it's it's an astounding, I mean, hopefully it's not too little too late, but it's an astounding amount of innovation. And I think we're starting to see similar shifts in conservation which is, is, is what's really needed to protect. Uh, Do you think our worldwide pandemic accelerated the um, 
the technology side to make a difference. And that's question one. And two, um, as of just four months ago, you know, I was vegetarian. Now I'm vegan. I will not eat dairy. I will not eat fish. I will not eat anything. But I do that from an understanding of, you know, how much uh, uh, water does it take to raise, get a cow and have him eat grass. And I think a lot of my listeners understand this. This isn't like unique to these listeners. On the other hand, many still haven't converted. I look at, you know, we read a lot of Dr. Gregor's stuff, uh, you know, speaking about how pandemics start, you know, is it the ducks, whatever you want to believe, however we got this. But did one, did, do you think the pandemic accelerated the desire technology true and also have some impact on the environment because people stopped traveling so much? We stopped putting, you know, pollutants in the air. We stopped airplanes. We, I mean, you think about it all. There was a lot of impact there for a while. Uh, are we going to just go back, Stephen, and just so, forget all about that now that we've got our masks off? <laughs> yeah, I think that, so. There's three layers. To this. It's a complicated. You're asking a good question, but I think there's I think there's a couple three layers. Like, did the pandemic accelerate technology? I think it stalled certain technologies. Right? Some of the some of the some of the technologies that required kind of more social engagement. Right. It's certainly, you know, the the um, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, all the things that were brought to bear on the pandemic itself. Wow, did they accelerate? Yeah. And right. And, and where you're going to see this and where it's going to matter environmentally, interestingly, is the same technologies, the same AI sort of matching technologies that sort of give us new meds. They also give us new foods. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see like a downstream impact in the food chain and health and, and things along those lines and in the reinvention of food. And, you know, so the technologies that make me really excited are things like vertical farming and uh, cultured beef, right? So steak from stem cells. And I've said for a while, these technologies make me so excited, both, you know, first of all, you know, like phenomenal that we can get like animals out of the food chain and you know yeah. cruelty cruelty free beef and all that stuff and the explosion in all the cultured beefs you know what i mean like it's cultured fish and oysters and any shrimp and everything you can imagine and you know by 2030 the the most and this keeps accelerating but they cost competitive we already have cultured beef that you can't tell the difference between it and great real steak taste wise and blind taste tests even with like three star michelin chefs cooking they you can't do it it's a price thing now and that's um about the bioreactors and the process that it takes to make this stuff and that is coming down so we think it's going to be cheaper than beef by 2030 so when you have a product that's cheaper than beef and it's beef it you know that's just a that's, it's fascinating what about printing food 3d printing food? that that i think that's the, that's you know <laughs> that's a same same curve basically um because we're already seeing lots of like 3d food printers with chocolate you know what i mean i think in uh i think it's the last tango i had a uh confectioner a 3d <laughs> confectioner yeah. right that was that was in, in last tango and <laughs> yeah. that stuff's already going on. I mean, Avi Reisenthal is a, a friend who's a runs 3d systems is 
a, a chocolate fanatic. So he's got into like chocolate printing and dessert printing, and, right? So you know all that stuff is coming. Um, but all this stuff liberates, like how do we get 30% of the plant, of the land mass for to give back to the animals? We need another 20% because 10% is already sort of protected. Where 30% of the planet's surface is used for cattle ranching. So we're about to see most of that go away. I think what'll be left is like boutique, super organic kind of um, and stuff or cattle that's used in Sylvia pastures, which is where you put agriculture and cattle ranching together. You actually get much better yields from agriculture when there are cows in the mix. And, um, you know, or large, we need, even if we had to restore forest health to the Great Plains, you need large herbivores bison buffalo running across the plains because this is they co-evolve together the grasses and, and the bisons and well, there are a lot of grasses on the plains that well, west west jackson is doing work yeah west is that west's stuff is yeah. amazing yeah and my friend's doing documentaries with him and and uh peter um uh, warren buffett's son is involved as well oh i didn't know that yeah Peter is oh, involved. That's, that's cool. Well, he's actually donated a lot of money to the Land Institute. But the, per, the whole perennial thing, if, if for my listeners, look, go back and listen. I, I'll put some links to a couple of podcasts I did with the guys that are working with uh, Wes Jackson. Um, you know, so perennial polycropping. Exactly. And it's necessary totally. for us to continue to keep soils. Uh, at high levels of nutritional value, number one, and not keep plowing them under and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, again, um, going back to this issue, you are addressing two questions. You did a great job on the technology side. Now, that whole thing around your flow collective or flow research collective and the science of flow and human performance, how about we talk about human empathy okay um is there an overlap in this world yeah so there's a lot of overlap well there's a lot of i mean the the overlap one flow increases kind of nature appreciation but it also increases empathy so over the past year uh i won't i'll be a little vague here um but we have trained up at the collective uh a number of different police forces in america and the reason is the, 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 the cops themselves um, want peak performance. The higher-ups want more empathetic police forces, especially after everything that happened this past year, right? Obviously, this is a major issue. And I think actually even at the, like the level of individual cops, and um, a lot of this has to do with the sort of the us-them thinking that is at the heart of sort of cop culture and you know, three-letter agency culture and U.S. military culture, right? There's an us-them mentality there um, that is um, is difficult. And uh, flow uh, seems to bridge that gap a lot, a little bit. And um, so we have been, I so uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and I, you know, Greg, Greg, I've always said this. I, um, my personal interest in flow was I wanted more flow for you know me and my friends, and I wanted to do research. I was the research puzzle is really what got me up in the morning, got me excited. When I started uh, the, the training side of, of the company and 
um, wanting to do that. A lot of it was for environmental reasons. It was, I wanted, you know, people want peak performance. They want to be more productive. They want to be more engaged at work. They want to be more creative. They want all this faster learning and, you know, well-being and happiness and all this stuff you get with flow. Cool. You can have that. I want you to be more empathetic and more environmentally aware and uh, more environmentally active. And it turns out, you know, me training people in flow serves my needs and the environment's needs. And it also serves the, our customers' needs, right? You get both. And so to me, the overlap is really important. Do you believe from an economic standpoint, though, you know, if I was looked at uh, Greg McKinnon and his work with minimalism and people uh, taking a more of a minimalist lifestyle, uh, again, our world is propagated with instant gratification, buy now, get it, add to, uh, I, I just noticed the other day, it's like, you know, how much of these little plastic trinkets that people get, no matter what it is at Christmas time or whatever, you know, is ending up in some landfill someplace um, on top of the fact that we've got, you know, gases being emitted as a result of all of these landfills. Comment on, if you would, this correlation between our consciousness and how the powers it be, I'm not going to say whether it's Facebook, Google, I'll try and name them all, are infiltrating our world, Amazon, to say bye-bye, bye-bye, bye, which we know that's having an impact on the distraction of our own consciousness and being being uh, more spiritually aware people. Um, do you do you have any kind of comment? about how we would break that tie to that? Well, so does that make sense? Yeah, I know what you're I know what you're saying. You're, I'm I mean, trying you're to asking, get it out, but no, I'm kind of screwing yeah, you're, around. You're asking, you're asking some good questions. I so Greg, what I think two couple things. I mean, one, like you we also it's also it is worth pointing out just because we've hated on the large tech companies a lot lately that Amazon's recent commitment, you know, like what Amazon is now doing for climate change, for conservation, for like all these issues, they're like, they're starting to get in this game at a really big level. Microsoft too. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you, if you ask me who's at the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff, Microsoft, and, and you know what I mean? Like cause some of these companies have really, really figured some stuff out or, and are working hard on it. So you gotta like, yes, we can point some fingers. I You're right. But you also got to, I think, celebrate when you see some wins. But what I will say is you're talking about sort of materialistic culture and the buy now, buy now, buy now, dopamine dopamine loops, right? And it's interesting because some of that is generational, right? Like we see less of it in Gen, uh, in Gen Z. Z, right? So the uh, the materialism is going is going away. So we are in, in that way. I also what I'm like I don't necessarily know if you're like you're, we need dopamine to survive, right? Like you're not going to win. I always say that one a lot of life is addiction management, right? Because we were dopamine adult driven systems because we're goal directed systems as humans, and that 
produces a lot of addictive behavior, including, you know, materialism, shopaholic stuff. Um, we, you know, so you, like, I always say that modern life is, is very much addiction management and we don't like to talk about that because addiction is this dirty word, but especially with social media and, and, and the way it works, you really need to be like, you need to know what's going on. I think like the cognitive literacy that has been really important to me at the Flow Research Collective um, is for, for teaching people like, hey, be aware of this is what dopamine feels like. This is how it interacts with your system. This is where that urge is coming from kind of thing. Here's how you sort of protect against it. That's part of it. But what I what I think is really much more hopeful, because I don't know how you like, can you get people to be better? I like you mentioned Bucky Fuller earlier. And, you know, Bucky said, don't try to change human behavior. It's been the same for so long. Go after the tools. Change the environment. Change the tools. Better tools lead to better people. Right. And so what I think is interesting is. So, for example, you mentioned the Forest Fire Collective uh, uh, that I'm involved in. That you're working in, yeah. Right. This is uh, there's a bunch of individuals, organizations, institutions who are trying to just restore forest health and end catastrophic wildfire in the American West. One of the big things we're working on is uh, ways to turn soft, woody biomass, basically the dead trees that are that are packing in our forests that we need to get out of our forests so they don't burn. Can you turn that into bioplastics? And the answer is yes. And that closes a loop. And now we have recyclable, biodegradable bioplastics that go back, you know, with, like the stuff I've seen around soft woody biomass degrades in three months and goes back into the earth as is completely natural. So that's the stuff that excites me. We're seeing cradle to cradle manufacturing practices where circular economics. Um, in fact, you know, it's so funny because you know, every time a, a field gets involved in this, they have to rename shit. So business has the ESG goals and, you know, environmentalists, uh, we've been talking about circular economics forever. And now if you're an economist, you talk about donut economics, but they're, they're all words for the same thing, which is like closing the loops in, you know, so input streams from you know, become waste streams, become input streams. So, you know, if you're a company and you produce waste, a waste product, it automatically becomes somebody else's input and gets turned into something else. So what- instead you said cradle to cradle in the normal t- terminology was cradle to grave. Cradle to grave. Cradle so to cradle it, so was it- William McDonough. Is that, I'm looking, I'm looking <laughs> on my bookshelf. I think it's McDonough. Oh, where's the, where's his damn book? Um, but yeah, cradle to cradle is um, the new is one of the new terms they're using. Well, I, I get that. Look, if you look at Apple or you look at Microsoft, you just mentioned that they've really gone a long way on recycling their products. What I don't know is when I take my old iPad to Apple, where that really goes. I haven't right. tracked that to see. Well, I, yeah, and by yeah. the way, I, I, it was I, another you know technology helping our challenges the internet of things as you know is really uh really being used for a lot of environmental purposes right and i'll give you an example there are now ways part of what has to happen for for the four fire collective is we have to sort of reinvent sawmills um because we need to process a lot of this wood sawmills are not the evil that we thought they were we obviously need to plant a ton of trees but we also need to bring back sawmills in a in a more sustainable uh fashion along mm-hmm. along the lines of this and um 
there are ways now using Internet of Things trackers that they can track a tree from the forest all the way to like your home, the the following the wood every step of the way. How fascinating. Right. So we're going to start seeing that because I agree with you. Like, yes, I, you know, I recycle my computers and all, all that, all that stuff. But like, where the hell is it going? There's a lot of heavy metals there. You know what I mean? A lot of our e-waste, we are shipping to Asia for years. Yeah. Right? Well, and then they, then now they don't want and it. And right now, China said, we don't want, <laughs> we don't want your waste. <laughs> we don't want your waste. But again, this is a global problem. And, you know, you come to this part about empathy and, and I can kind of wrap this up. There couldn't be anything more uh, alive for me and present than, you know, rescuing little dogs and making them part of my, my world. And you said Buddy Sue Project focuses on revolutionizing the quality of hospice for dogs. My my wife and I were talking about this. Who's adopting those dogs that are in their last days of their life that wants to take care of them? I was talking to some people at the dog park because we go there all the time. And the other thing is um, I've found a new product here just for people that are listening and have dogs. Uh, Artificial turf that lasts 15 years that has no smell, then in the state of California, which the reduction in water usage, now the reduction in water usage, leaving a non-toxic chemical that gets sprayed on it because the sprinklers put it out there, right? And I'm actually investing in this company because I believe in what they're doing because you see thousands of dog parks in these planned communities coming up with people trying to maintain and keep grasses green and then walk their dogs. They got a problem. They got to have a place to go take the dogs, right? So tell us a little bit about this, this hospice care and the yeah. Buddy Sue project. So you, you, you know, Greg, that, that, that when my wife and I were in New Mexico, we ran Rancho de Chihuahua, which was a hospice care and special needs dog sanctuary, rescue sanctuary. Um, you know, our work in New Mexico was in, we were working and living in a, in a very poor rural community with a very high instance of animal cruelty. So it was sort of a frontline effort. We did that for about 15 years. And um, what came out of that work was, first of all, after 15 years on the front lines, you got to get off the front lines, you'll go crazy, but was a healing protocol, an elder care protocol that is phenomenal. There's an overall movement in uh in the in the vet world in a sense to double canine lifespan they don't think that's too difficult applying sort of the human standards of care to dogs they they think that's low-hanging fruit and we we tend to agree in the work we've done really sort of like some of its nutrition some of its the way we care for our dogs some of its flow so the etc cetera, etc cetera. um we will take dogs with late stage cancer and stage heart failure you know, one eye, three legs and, you know, all that stuff. And, and supposedly a month left to live, right? We'll get the dog in, they'll go to a vet and the vet will say things like, don't get too attached. They'll probably get a pass away within a couple of months, just so you know. We hear this all the time. And then the dogs live five to 10 more years because our protocol works so well. So what we wanted to do was also in the same time from that I'm talking about, we had the chance, my wife more than me, to tour some other hospice care facilities that are starting to pop up and um, to, to put it bluntly, people are just doing it wrong. They have the, like really basic stuff that to us um, is being missed. And some of the hospice facilities we've cared for 
are really high stress environments for dogs and, and are not dogs are not going to flourish there. And so what we decided to do is to reboot. We've moved to Nevada, Northern Nevada. And so we're, um, we're actually the buddy Sue project is new. It's a, we're, we are um, in the process of fundraising for it right now to build it, but we're going to build a dedicated, which one I, it's the, it's, we're going to build a facility that I call the cohabitation project, the human animal home tomorrow today. So the artificial grass you're talking about, we want indoor pet bathrooms for older dogs. Um, among other things, soundproof walls, things like that, shoeproof furniture. Um, we want uh, that for our, our animals, but we're basically going to create this better facility and turn it into a YouTube channel so we can give away the so we can watch what we're doing and we can give away the healing protocol to everybody. And in the end, what we want to start to do is um, the third stage of it. So stage one is build the facility and, and get that done. Stage two is of course, get the YouTube show going so people can start sharing this protocol. And stage three is create um, what I'm basically like Tinder for that matches people, humans who have dog, humans who are dying, who have dogs. It's a big problem. Oh, right. Very cool. Right. You dying humans with small dogs, you know, like an elderly person who gets a chihuahua as a companion animal that's a 22 year that Chihuahua lifespan is 20 to 25 years. So yeah. if somebody's in their eighties and they're going to be gone by the time they're in their 90, their dog's going to outlive them by 20 years. And so right. it's a huge stressor to people, humans in hospice care, dying humans. Oh my God, what's going to happen to my dog. And so we want to create a matching service between dying humans and adoptees who, who can take their dog. So well, it's count three. me in for a donation to your your thank you, sir. Project. I send me an email when we hang up uh, because I'm a huge advocate of. I donate to a lot of things, uh, including what is it, Danny and Ron's rescue. Uh, I that guy up in Oregon with the 25 acre ranch, yeah. Asher, yeah. Asher, who's on Netflix. I'd love to see your YouTube channel, and for all my listeners, we'll put a link for this as well, because this is all about empathy, right? Exactly. This is, this is the kind of thing that will shift your consciousness about how you treat the whole world. Um, I've always said that people that adopt dogs at any stage are really true loving human beings and they become part of the family. You were talking about that earlier. And along that line, Go pick up this book, The Devil's Dictionary, for a thrilling, the characters are rich. It's a nonfiction book about really how you now become more empathetic, how we shift the world, how we make this place a better place and solve some of these. I was being nice when we set up, it's gone sideways, but to really uh, fix some of the problems. Hey. Stephen, it's always a pleasure having you on. It's a pleasure. I could talk to you for hours because every time I get on here, I learn something new or I hear something new. And that's the same thing for my listeners. I hope today for everyone out listening, you've learned something new from Stephen. He's got this great book. We'll put a link to Amazon. We'll put a link to his website. We'll put a link. Does your uh, new nonprofit for the dog thing, do you, do you have a link for it yet? Uh, I will get you what we, I'll get you an email that, people, okay. that, that, yeah, that we can, so people who are, cause we are fundraising. So all the help that we can get. We I, I will definitely make a donation to your project. I'd love awesome. to do that. And 
those are passion projects. That's what you and your wife love doing. So um, th- blessings to you. Any any last thoughts as we kind of wrap this thing up? No, I just I I just want to thank you because this is I don't know how many we've done of these together. I think but, five um, or six. Five or six. Yeah. yeah, you've been you've been usually supportive and and asked you know smart questions all the way through, and we've had fun discussions. So thank you. Well, you're quite welcome, and I hope that you're. Uh, feeling better. So tomorrow you can go back out on the skis. Don't fall. Uh, stay safe. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.